Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Thanks for joining us today in week four of our Dysfunctional Family Series. If you remember back to science class, if you paid attention, there was the building blocks of life, or DNA. The thing that's fascinating about our DNA is that 99% of our DNA that we have essentially the same. But it's that 1% that tells what eye color you'll have, or how tall you'll be, or how much hair you'll have, or not how much hair you'll have. And so that 1% makes the absolute difference. And I hope you've been able to see over the past several weeks that we are far more alike than we are different. And going back through all of the families of the Bible, back to Joseph in the Old Testament, back to Solomon in the Old Testament, back to Jesus and how he dealt with his family, and today we're going to look at the most dysfunctional of all families. And so as we've been through that, I hope you can see that we are far more alike than we are different. And that that almost less than 1% of your DNA is what makes you different from anybody else. At the risk of oversimplifying it, I'm a pretty simple man. Think of it this way. If we were all books, we'd have the same chapters, we'd have the same pages, we'd have the same number of sentences, everything would be lined up right. I'd have a typo on page 301, and you'd have a typo on page 25. And they may spell the word color in my book, C-O-L-O-R, and in your book it might be like they spell it in the UK, C-O-L-O-U-R. And so we are far more alike than we are different. And all of the dysfunction that we've talked about over the past three, four weeks is really that we're very similar. And so I hope you've been able to see that and that today as we look at possibly the most dysfunctional of all families, I hope that you'll consider that you and I are part of the dysfunction. That we bring our own level of dysfunction into our family and that we also bring a level of dysfunction into another family. You see, Jesus dies on the cross. He comes back from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And before he ascends to heaven, he leaves his family with another family, so to speak. And he starts a family known as the church. You see, the church may be the most dysfunctional of all families. And he leaves his family with them. Now, you may say, well, a a church is not a family. Well, I'm going to push back against that a little bit today. We have a father. We refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters. Paul refers to us as brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, the word disciple is almost non-existent after the book of Acts in the New Testament. From there on out, we're referred to as brothers and sisters. Those who follow Jesus would be referred to as brothers and sisters. Paul uses imagery of a body that everybody has to play their part and for that body to work correctly. And so you've got some of the hands and some of the feet and some of the eyes and some of the ears was reminded of that this week as Dave, our maintenance guy, came to me with a problem and he didn't have a clue how to fix it. And if Dave doesn't know, we're in trouble. And I had no clue how to fix it. But we called two guys in the church and they looked at it and came in and they were like, piece of cake. And it's a very simple example of how God put us together so that we would work best when we work together. When Paul talks about a husband and wife relationship in Ephesians chapter 5, he ends it all and he says, That's how a husband and wife should be, but I'm really talking about the church. He's talking about the importance of Jesus Christ being the center of not only the home, but also the church as well. Now, before we talk about this most dysfunctional of all families, I just want to stop and pause for a minute and say I'm sorry. 
I am sure each and every one of you have something or some memory of the church in which someone hurts you or something didn't work out how you thought. And I just want to tell you today that that's not from the Lord. That was from people. And so I just want to say, in case I've done something or our church has done something, that, that every time you put a group of dysfunctional people together, whether it's in a household or in a body like this here, you are going to have problems. And I want to apologize if that's ever been something that you've dealt with. But I also want to recognize that God does some incredible things through His church and help you see your part that you play in it today. If you remember back to week one, I said that forgiveness is always possible because forgiveness is a choice that I can make. But reconciliation takes two people. And Paul dealt with one of the most dysfunctional churches on the planet in a church called Corinth. And that's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible, slip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But before we get there, you need to understand that Paul was dealing with an immense amount of dysfunction in this church. And in light of all of that, he pursued reconciliation. And reconciliation is when somebody decides they're going to fix what's broken, what was once together but has been split apart. And Paul gives us this little break in the middle of 2 Corinthians to help us understand that reconciliation is at the heart of God. And so today we understand that dysfunction ends where reconciliation begins. Dysfunction ends where reconciliation begins. And Jesus Christ made the first move to reconcile us, and Paul reminds the people of Corinth about that today. You know, in spite of humans' best efforts to destroy the church, it's still here. And you think of all of the problems that you see in the church. Jesus told Peter the day that he founded the church, or before he founded the church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And Jesus Christ went on to say later that he died for the church. We want to be a place where if this is the only thing you know of church, that it's a place that you understand that we are willing to be patient with you. But I also want to say, if the only thing you know of church is what happens here at 9 o'clock and 10.30 on Sunday morning, you're missing out. If the only thing you understand about church is what happens in this room at this time, at 9 and 10.30, you are missing out on so much more that God designed for the church. He designed it to be a place of community because no one was made to do life alone. He designed it as a place where each one of you has a, a gift that we frankly need. And that we only function well when everybody plays their part well. And so if you only know is this is, what, this is all you know right here, can I tell you that we're going to be patient with you in that. But I've also learned after 10 years of plus of working in church work is that we don't want anything from you. We want something for you. And I can honestly stand before you and say that if you'll press into what God has designed in regards to the church, that you will experience blessing and learn in depth and insight about who God is in a way that you cannot do anywhere else. And so as we think about this most dysfunctional of families, we look at the church in Corinth. Now, in 1 Corinthians, where is Paul's first letter, it's actually not his first letter. He visited them, and 1 Corinthians is a response into all that they figured out. And in 1 Corinthians, you have this massive level of disruption and dysfunction, these problems that, that go on and on and on about what happens in 1 Corinthians, it's broken down into five major areas. The first thing that happened in the church in Corinth was that there were divisions. There were people who said, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and I follow Jesus. 
And what had happened with the Corinthian church is it became fractured. There were all these different groups of people that were like, this is most important. I want you to think back to any time you've been in a dysfunctional church, for those of you who grew up in church. And I can about guarantee you that the reason that church began to go sideways is any time that they put a leader above Jesus. And so at the very beginning thing we see that the church in Corinth, Paul starts out and he says, look, you can't be following Peter or Paulus or me or anybody. You got to follow Jesus. The second problem in the Corinthian church was they had a problem with sex. And if you understand the, the history of Corinth, you know that the temple of Artemis, which was a sex temple, was at the paramount of their society. It was a major trade city, both by sea and by land. And in Corinth, in the church, not just in the, the town, but in the church, there was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. And the church was okay with it. And Paul says, even people outside the church thinks that's nuts. Like, what, were you, what are you thinking? So, right, we always like to compare ourselves to other people so we feel better about ourselves, right? So we can say, we've got some problems here at Westbridge, but I hope we don't have those problems. He goes on, so there's divisions. They have problems with sex and what that means for them. They had a food problem. They didn't have Trader Joe's, Kroger, and everywhere else they could go. They had one place to get food. But the problem with their food is it was offered to idols, and it was sacrificed to idols, and the Christians are like, do we eat it or do we not eat it? Like, should we starve or should we eat some more? And so there's this problem here, and then their gathering times, which would be similar to what we do here. They'd get together, and instead of just having one person speak, everybody gets to share and speak. And so can you imagine the chaos if all of us decided at once to start yelling and shouting what was most important to us today? And then lastly, they had a problem with the resurrection. And they thought, the resurrection is about Jesus. It's not important. And Paul says, wait a minute. If the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. And not only that, we should be the most of all pity, people pitied because we're still in our sins. And so these five major areas represent the dysfunction that the Corinthian church has. In 2 Corinthians, Paul comes along and for chapters 1 through 7 tries to reconcile with these people. He tries to explain himself and to explain using images and, and messages from the Lord about what it meant to, to be reconciled. He tried to fix some of the problems. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 14, it's kind of in the middle of his whole little thing that he's going through. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was recon reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Paul writes back to the Corinthian church in, chapter, in the first book of Corinthians, he just addresses the problems, and there's a lot of them. In 2 Corinthians, though, he wants to try and put things back together. And in the middle of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, 
he starts out and he says, for Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us to want to fix the things that are wrong. And he says, not only does it compel us for that, he's talking in the previous tense of what he just finished talking about, but it also is in the case that he says, for Christ's love compels us that we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And what he's referencing is, is that these people were so wrapped up in their culture and he's reminding them that, look, when Christ died and you became a part of that through Jesus Christ, that we died to our old selves. We died to our old way of living. And Paul says that Christ's love compels me. I got to tell you this, this is the most important thing, that when you died with Christ, all that should have changed. And so he spends the next couple of verses unpacking that, and he goes on to say in verse 15, and that he died for all, that those who live, which would be us, by the way, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When I worked with high school students, I had three rules. I have three rules with my family, too. They're the same ones. Number one, don't be stupid. Number two, this life is not about you. And number three, nobody sits alone. Those rules were more for me than they were for the students. But rule number two, which is this life is not about you, comes directly from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but should live for Him. The best way to eliminate the dysfunction in your family, the best way to, to, uh, to move towards reconciliation is to have a proper understanding of yourself. That every single one of us at the foot of the cross is guilty of sin. And so the first thing we understand about reconciliation is that it's only possible when we have an accurate view of ourselves. That reconciliation is only possible when we have an accurate view of ourselves. Paul says, look, Christ died for you, not so that you could be selfish, not so that you could do whatever you want to do. And as you read through 1 Corinthians, you, you get that sense. Everybody was just doing what was right in their own eyes. And Paul says, wait a minute, Christ died for you so that you would live for him. And when you think of the dysfunction that's in churches, and even in our church, you think of the dysfunction that's in your family, it's when a bunch of people get together and they say, it's about me. Because that's how we naturally wake up. I don't know about you, but I naturally don't think, how can I help somebody else out today? How can I? No, I'm pretty self-centered. And so Paul says, look, Christ died for you so that you could go and live for him. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say this, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. It's entirely true that reconciliation is possible when we have an accurate view of ourselves, that we're sinners saved only by the grace of God. But on verse 16, Paul says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, although we used to regard Christ in this way. Our views about God and our views about people, when we become Christians, they should start to change. We should start to realize that, we're, that we all are in need of God's grace. And that should allow us, hopefully, to be more willing to reconcile. Realizing that I'm no better than you and you're no better than me. Realizing that we used to think of each other in, in, in a worldly way. Right? Paul used to think of Christ in a worldly way. He was bent, literally, on making sure that Jesus Christ and the church were destroyed 
but he no longer felt that way. You may have a level of dysfunction in your home or even here at church and you, and you think of people and it's really easy when we get self-centered to start to miss out on what's most important. And so Paul says, look, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I would remind you to not expect Christians or non-Christians to act like Christians. They're not going to. And frankly, some Christians don't act like Christians. That's one of people's biggest problems. And so he says in verse 17 that therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And he's reminding them, in, in the midst of trying to reconcile with these people, he's reminding them, look, you should be different. You should be different. Not in a perfected kind of way, because we will never be perfect, but in a progressing kind of way. If you can look back five years from where you came from, hopefully you love God more now than you did five years ago. We should be progressing people, not perfect people. Because the the process of sanctification where God makes us more like Him takes a lifetime. And so as Paul lays this out, he says, look, there should be a difference with you. There should be a difference with me. And he tells the Corinthian church in the midst of all their dysfunction that they've got to be different. Verse 18 goes on to say, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All of this is from God. A new heart, a new view of people, a new view of God. That is only possible from God. Because given to our own selfishness, we'll see people in our own light. And we'll see them through our own perspectives. And we'll see them and cut them short of what God may want to do in their lives. And so in verse 18, he says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the job to try and help people see. And you can't read the rest of the New Testament and the description of the early church without coming away with our job as reconcilers. That's what we're called to do. He's going to unpack that in the following verses. But when you think of all of the the dysfunction that he's dealing with. He says, look, at the core of who we're supposed to be is reconcilers. And the problem with the Corinthian church was they became so preoccupied with their dysfunction, they forgot why they were there. They just forgot. And the danger is that we'll do the same too. Prior to indoor plumbing, everybody took a bath outside. And in those days, I wasn't there, but I'm told this is what happened. The men would go first, and then the ladies, and then the kids, and lastly, they would wash the baby, which in our culture would not stand. We'd wash the baby first, then everybody else, but just follow me here. When you think of the church, there's a lot of dirt and mess and grime that's on the church, and we come together, and when you get all that together, you get get a lot of mess, right? So one of the things you end up with... It's conflict, right? And you get enough conflict in some people and you put enough people long enough together, there's going to be some conflict. I like this. I don't like this. It's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. It's, I don't like that song. I like that song. He said this. She said this. You know, that kind of stuff. So that muddies up the water quite a bit and people get mad and hopefully they don't leave, but sometimes they do. Number, this one, right? Nobody likes rules. 
right? And you get some rules, and there's some rules. I don't like rules. I don't like to tell people telling me what to do, and so there's some rules. And that, that muddies up the water, too. And so as you think of the church, you've got all this nasty stuff going on, and people are like, I don't like the rules. I don't like conflict. I don't like, uh, oh, nobody likes this one, judgment. Right? And there's judgment in the church, so therefore I don't, I'm not a part of the church because people might judge me, make me feel bad about myself, and I don't like that. So that muddies up the water a little bit. Um, buckle up, this one might be close. Clicks. There's, I hang out with this person or I don't hang out with this person. I got an interest of full disclosure this week. I got mad at somebody, and, uh, and I had the thought, if I'm a Christian, and they're a Christian, we're going to be together a long, long time. So they can go to another church, I could go to another church, you could go to another church, you could not go to church at all, and if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you're going to be with them Forever. And so we can learn to get along now or we can be forced to for eternity and it all muddies up the water. And lastly, hypocrisy. We say one thing, I say one thing, and I do another. And when you think of all the things that came along with the Corinthian church and all the things that come along with our church, this water is really, really dirty. There's an idiom that came out of the time before indoor plumbing that said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And when you look at the church, and I have to be careful, this is Reese's doll, and I promised I would take very good care of her. When you look at the church, and the only thing you see is the dysfunction, and the hypocrisy, and the judgment, and the rules, and the conflict, and all of the problems, and that's all you see. And so what people do, and maybe for very good reasons, they say, well, I'm done with the church. And can I just encourage you today to not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Because the Corinthian church had so many problems, more than we do. And we have some. And for you to miss out on what God may want to do in you and through you, because it's not this building, it is you guys, the people, the body. Can I just encourage you, please don't give up on it. Jesus Christ hasn't given up on it. It is his plan A. There is no plan B. And so don't allow yourself to throw the baby out with all of the nasty bathwater and not allow yourself to remember that in verse 18, it says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. Our job is to be reconcilers. Our job is to help people see that first and foremost, they need more than anything else, more than church, more than rules, more than anything else, they need Jesus. And that's our job. And the church of Corinth was so preoccupied with what was very true, all this muddy water, that they missed out that their primary job was to reconcile and to help people do that. In spite of all the things we get tripped up on, we can't, we can't miss the fact that the job of the church, us, is to share the hope of Jesus in a tangible way with the world. The other thing we recognize from verse 18 is that reconciliation with God is only possible through Jesus. And we are glad you're a part of this church. We hope you come all the time. We hope you don't just come on Sundays, that you'll plug in and find a way to be a part of community and serve and to be active in it. But the only way you'll ever fix your relationship with God is with Jesus. 
And so reconciliation at its very core is something that's close to the heart of God. But they discover it through us. They discover it through the church. And we can either help that process or in the scary case of most of the time, we can hurt that process. The next thing you need to see is in verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. You see, we have the message of reconciliation. It's our job. It's what we're supposed to do. The Corinthians were so enamored with all of the problems they have that they forgot that their first job was to help people see Jesus. And sometimes that happens to you and to me. It's interesting, though, the other thing you need to know about reconciliation, and this works in your house, and it works here at church, is that reconciliation is only possible when forgiveness is extended. Somebody has to make the first move. It's like that awkward middle school dance that you went to, and you got all the guys over here and all the girls, and then finally one girl stepped out, right, because the guys are a bunch of pansies, and then they all, everybody came out, right? And so that's what's got to happen with reconciliation is somebody's got to be willing to extend forgiveness, and that works in your house, and it works here at church, and it works in every relationship you have. Here's the great news. Jesus Christ stepped out before we would ever step out and offered forgiveness to you and me, and in verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and then catch this part, not counting people's sins against them. There is forgiveness from Jesus Christ for everything. He does not count your sin against you. He's willing to step out and forgive you. You just got to be willing to receive that forgiveness and step into a relationship where his entire goal is the reconciliation of all mankind back to him. And if you go back to that very first family that messed it all up for all of us, you'll see that that's been his goal from that day on, to reconcile people to himself. But somebody's got to make the first move. You know, it happened in the church of Corinth, and it could happen to us that we miss our primary role. Verse 20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And this is the scary part about what God does, and the part that I'd love to ask why is, why on earth use us? But he's using us as ambassadors, and he's wanting to work through our own personal dysfunction. And so if you've stayed away from what God wants you to do because you're embarrassed about how bad your family is, start reading of all the bad families that God managed to work through. If you're embarrassed and you've been held back to what God wants to do in your life because you're ashamed of what's happened, he says that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors and he's making his appeal what? Through us. Paul would go on to say it this way in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul speaking of himself. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would one day believe in him and receive eternal life. So it could be that as you look through the dysfunctional families that are listed throughout the Bible, when you think of the dysfunction that, is, that you are a part of, that God wants to use even that to help you bring more people into the family. 
It involves you stepping out and being willing to be used. Nobody's going to Instagram this week about the worst week of their life. It just isn't going to happen because we naturally just want to show the good things. And that's okay. We want to celebrate with you. But in reality, Paul was willing to say, I am the worst of sinners so that God might display his, his extreme patience in my life so that other people may see that God could do something in their lives too. And that's the incredible truth with the church of Corinth. As jacked up as they were, God says, wow, some great things are going to come out of Corinth. There's some great people in Corinth. And the good news is that in spite of our dysfunction, that we can still be used as well. And then he ends, like Paul so often does, is pointing it back to, he's trying to get them to see the most important thing. In verse 21, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's this idea of what theologians call substitutionary atonement, that God took your sin and he put it on Christ. And that Christ, by living a perfect life and going to the cross, he could pay for your sin. And so that when God saw you, he no longer sees your sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ for those of you who would choose to believe and choose to partake in that. And Paul, as he looks out over the dysfunction of the Corinthian church and he's trying to reconcile, he's trying to make things right, he reminds them that your sin, your dysfunction at the core of who you are, that God took care of that. And God is willing to, to not only use it, but to, to take it and use it in a way that honors him. And so as you think back over the past several weeks of what we've talked about with the, the dysfunctional families that are here, I just remind you that it'll take forgiveness from Joseph. It'll take us to put the things in life that we put above God in right place. It'll take us living like Jesus with his dysfunctional family in humility. And it'll take us to realize what our job is as reconcilers. And that if we'll do those things, we stand an incredible chance not to live in perfection, but to live in peace. And so as you think through your own dysfunctional family and you think through the dysfunction that's here in this church and really churches around the world because they're full of dysfunctional people, there's a couple of things to think through today. Because dysfunction ends where reconciliation begins. And the biggest dysfunction in your life is your sin. That is your biggest problem. But if you'll allow God to work through that, and to fix that problem, and to be reminded that that's our biggest problem, I think you'll see him work in other areas as well. And so I hope that you're reconciled with your family. If not, I pray that that'll happen at some point in the days, weeks, and months ahead. But there's a question I've got to ask you today, and that question is, are you reconciled with God? Because that's his heart. He wants you to be in the family. He wants you to be in the church, not necessarily this church, but the collective church as a whole. In every other religion, it's about what man can do to get to God. But Christianity is the only religion where God came down to rescue man so that those men could be in his family. So the question today is, are you reconciled with God? Have you said yes to Jesus and admitted your sin, that you need a Savior? Have you realized that you're not good enough and even coming to church while is a great thing? 
it will not save you. That you need a Savior to forgive you of your sin. And that Jesus can do that. And he lived a perfect life and took your sin and my sin on the cross and took my place. He was raised up on that cross. He paid for it. He died. And three days later, he came out of the grave in victory over sin and death and said that anyone who would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal, eternal life. And that if you believe in him, he'll reconcile you to the Father that you'll be a part of that family forever. And if you've never done that today, can I just challenge you to, to think and consider about that? If I can help you in that process, I'd love to. But for the rest of us, as we seek to reconcile with one another, please don't allow yourself to be caught up in all of the muddiness of your family and the muddiness of your life and the muddiness of the church and get rid of all of that because that's so the only thing we can see. But don't allow yourself to throw the baby out with the bathwater and allow yourself to be reconciled to God and hopefully in time reconciled with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have today to be reminded from the Corinthian church that God, in spite of all their dysfunction, you use them in some incredible ways. And God, you'll do the same in our lives as well, if we'll just let you. God, also thank you for the reminder that at your very core is the heart of reconciliation. And so God, if I, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you as personal Lord and Savior, that God, that they might seek you out today. That they may seek out someone to explain more. And that God, that they would step into the relationship that you offer to fix their biggest problem. God, in the days and the weeks and the months and years to come, help us not to be so distracted by all the dysfunction in our life that we miss out on what our job is, and that is to be your conduit of grace and mercy in this world through your people, the church. And God, we ask for your help in that and recognize that we'll, if we'll submit to that, that you will indeed help and lead and guide us. And so, God, we ask for your help today. We ask for a blessing upon every single family that's in this room today. That, God, that they may see their continued need for you and that they would be willing to submit what you have for them. God, we're grateful for the people that make up this church and recognize that we all live in dysfunction. We all contribute to it. But, God, help us to make this church more about you and less about us. In Jesus' name. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.